We like to believe that there are laws among thieves. We like to believe that there are rules of honor, that when Michael Corleone orders a mob hit, it's because some code has been violated, that if Tony Soprano chokes a guy to death in a parking lot, it is because that guy broke some rule, that he deserved it somehow. This is one of the most romantic ideas that we have about crime, that there could be a system, that there could be ancient, strict rules, and that there are people out there who actually try to follow those rules, you know? And at one level, of course we want to believe that. Of course we want to believe that it's all so orderly, rather than the thing that we fear about crime, which is that it's random and can strike us at any time, that it's senseless. If there's a system, if there are rules, if it's a business, you know, it doesn't even seem like crime. Well, it turns out that there's a classic American primer about the laws of pimps and pimping, written in 1968, Iceberg Slim's Pimp, the Story of My Life. In it, Iceberg Slim explains the rules of being a successful pimp. It is such a clearly defined tradition, the way he tells it, that at one point, he visits an older pimp for advice, and the guy doesn't just give him the advice. He begins by laying out the entire history of pimping in the Americas. And then he gives him the pointers on how to pimp by the book. By the book is always said in this um, reverential way when you read Iceberg Slim. By the book means, when it comes to pimping, knowing that you're using people, outmaneuvering them when they try to play you, and never getting sentimental about it. It's business. Today on our program, a former pimp makes the case that in Oakland, California, in the 1970s, in the last heyday of American pimps, in a stronghold of American pimping, the rules of the game that Iceberg Slim describes were not just a reassuring fiction, but a way of life for hundreds of people, maybe thousands. Welcome to WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Most weeks on our program, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today, instead, we are devoting our entire program to just one story of a man who tried to be a pimp, found out he did not have the stomach for the violence, and how that led to his downfall in the pimping world. Today's show is the story of him and his friends and his observations about the rules of the game on the street back then. I have to say, part of what's amazing about him is the detail that he gets to in describing how that world worked. Our program today, Pimp Anthropology, Act 1, Rules of the Game, Act 2, The Price of Ignoring the Rules. Stay with us. The guy who is the subject of our show today spoke with Tamar Brat, a writer in California who he's known for years. I should say before we begin that if you are listening with small children, there is no sex in today's show. None at all, no graphic descriptions, no sex acts are even named, though there is a scene or two where men hit women. Well, here's Tamar Brat. When Kevin was growing up in Oakland, he and his childhood friends, Mark, Keith, and little Ricky, decided they were going to be pimps, and that's what they became. This was in the 70s, and the city was overrun with pimps. The vice cops say that Oakland had the largest prostitution trade in all of California. The infrastructure was perfect. Plenty of freeway access to cheap motels, and lots of places for the pimps to shop. 
They went to Hill's Shoes for their footwear, Olson's Cadillac for their custom cars, and Wilson's House of Leather for their clothes. At the height of his glory, Kevin wore a gold lame suit with beaver fur collar and cuffs. Mark favored a long white leather coat. Keith was partial to jewel-encrusted dollar signs. This is their story. Where I was raised, uh, a lot of kids, uh, we looked at role models, just as they do today, look at athletes today. Well, back then, um, uh, one of the first images of success that you would see were Cadillacs. That was a sign of success for people in, in sort of poor and blighted areas, especially in housing projects. My, one of my earliest record memories was of a guy named Robert Charles. He was a local guy who had, a, a, at the time, I thought was the greatest car in the world. He had a Cadillac that probably was a, like a 60, 61 Cadillac brown. It was, the car was beautiful. And he'd ride through the neighborhood, you know. And I didn't realize at the time that he was a pimp. But he'd ride through the neighborhood. He had the girls. And, and one of the things he'd always do was he would uh, we'd have the ice cream truck that would roll through the neighborhood. He'd stop and get out. And he'd buy all the kids ice creams. So, so obviously, the image for us of, of Robert Charles was like, wow, this guy's really successful. He's got lots of money. And all of us aspire to, to be like Robert Charles. Right outside of Berkeley, um, on the Oakland border, is a, a, a hotel. It's called the California Hotel. At that time, back in the uh, 60s, it was, I'm guessing, 600-room hotel, a really big hotel. Had a ballroom, uh, a nightclub. At that time, uh, Richard Pryor, who was just starting to burst on the national scene, was doing stand-up there. Almost, it reminds me of what I've read about what Harlem was like. It was an area where... Uh, people who were black who were successful would go well one of the things that happened was that whole California hotel in the street San Pablo had become a red light district um, I remember the first time I rode down there um, going down San Pablo and seeing all the girls dressed standing on the corners soliciting the cars as they walk by you know the short dresses the skimpy outfits um everything and every pimp who was ever a pimp in the whole area drove up and down the street they drove up and down the street i mean and at that point you know it's really funny because it's different now i don't think a pimp would would want to be out there now they sort of want to stay in the background but then it was you wore it like a badge of honor when we originally began going down there keep in mind we were catching a bus there we would just go down there and get the bus ac transit we would get down there we'd get off the bus and we would just walk around you know uh, uh we might tease the girls hey how you doing honey what's up you know where's your man at you know he'll be back in 15 minutes you know just jiving shucking and jiving as they call it with the girls now you got to keep in mind now we're going down there but at the same time we're, we're going back to school the next day One thing about Keith is that 
Keith at some point made a decision that that was more important to him to be successful at that than anything else. He made the step that none of us were, uh, none of the others were willing to make, and that was to drop out of school. His first thing was that I got to get me a car. I got to get me a car. I got to have flash. I got to have something to show. I remember Keith, he couldn't afford a Cadillac. So what he had was a Ford. He had, a, I think, a Ford Falcon. And it was, a, it was a convertible, though. And here's what he did. He painted it red, bright red. And he had the convertible top taken off. It was a black convertible top, and he had a white convertible top put on it. I and mean, this was a car that he probably paid 400 bucks for or something like that. But when he finished it, it looked shiny and new, you know. And, and, and boy, I'll tell you, he'd be riding up and down there. We'd be in the car with him. We'd be riding up and down San Pablo. And he'd be in this little red Ford, which was unheard of. I mean, nobody even went down there in the Ford. But he was bold and brash enough to do that and do it with confidence. Um, it was almost like he was saying, well, look, this is just my little sporty car. I've got a new Rolls Royce at home, you know. The next thing Keith needed to do was what every pimp needs is he needs a girl. I mean, you got to have a girl. I mean, you can have the cars, you can have the clothes, but you have to have a girl. Keep in mind, too, at that point, the area that we would go in was so established, you either, like, knocked, when they say knocked, pulled some other man's girl, or you turned the girl out, which would mean that you would, you know, introduce her to that whole lifestyle. For Keith and us, it was about turning a girl out. That's how Keith got started. He turned out his girlfriend, who had been his longtime girlfriend anyway. Here's how it's introduced to her. One day Keith is at at his house, and we're all laughing and joking and having a drink or whatever. And he goes into the room and he says to her, you know what? Mark's a little drunk. He wants to go to bed with you. I told him to give me 50 bucks and, I, you know, I'd ask you. So suddenly, um, she's like, no, I don't want to do it like this. But suddenly he's talking her into this. Well, you know, it's only Mark. You know, it's not a big deal. We could use the 50 bucks, you know what I mean? We could go do something, go out to dinner, go buy you a dress or something like that. You take the money. I don't want it. You can go buy yourself something with it. So suddenly, this girl is now saying, well, okay, it's only Mark. You know, I kind of know Mark. You know, he's not a bad guy. Okay, I'll do it. Well, you see, once you do that, once you sell yourself for money, it becomes very easy to do it again. You're there when he when he pulls this sting on her. Did you feel any sort of pity, or what did you feel for her, knowing that a, a door had been opened for her that she would probably go into? I thought it was great. I really thought it was great. Uh, watching this guy work, I mean, watching this guy, because he was, I didn't think it was great to the extent that, that some girl was getting turned out. I thought it was great to the extent that all of a sudden, Everything that those images that we had we had 
saw that we had aspired to, all of it was su- suddenly happening. And, and I was actually having the opportunity to be a part of it. I mean, it's one thing to watch Robert Charles and his girls, but it's another thing to go through the evolutionary process to see a, a, a pimp, so to speak, being born as well as a prostitute. And, and that was my image at that time. I was excited. It was like, wow, this man is actually getting ready to do what we just, you know, what we've only talked about. He's actually getting ready to really do it. And not only that, he's got a girl who made the first step. So it was exciting. We were all excited. And after the fact, and this is what really, I think, and truly makes um, for a great pimp, the way that Keith made her feel afterwards. I remember very clearly that, that, that uh, when we heard Mark and her coming out the room, we were like kind of giggling, right? And I remember Keith getting, getting very serious. He was very serious. He was like, man, cut that shit. He didn't want her in any way to feel like, you know, she had been used. You know, he, 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 he gave her the money, he talked with her, he hugged her, he kissed her. I mean, he actually showed her a lot of love at that particular point. And I think that was the thing. I mean, that's one of the most significant things when you're turning a girl out. And she became... Um, quite a prostitute, as a matter of fact. I asked Kevin how Mark knew how to turn out his own girlfriend like that. Kevin just said that's how it had always been done. That's how Iceberg Slim did it, and God knows how many pimps before him. The world of pimping is filled with many of these particular customs and bylaws. There was a a gentleman-like... agreement so to speak that there was rules of the game and this is the thing that's changed nowadays back then there was a purity of it it's almost like a love like basketball people a love for the game itself and as a result of these people having a love for a game there was also rules and there were street rules and those rules was adhered like laws Because there was a game and there were, because there was rules and laws, there was things that needed to be done. And if a girl didn't understand the rules and laws, that she could be in violation of what they call out of pocket, or bitch being out of pocket. Some of the rules are obvious. Every prostitute's supposed to have a pimp. Every pimp's supposed to give that prostitute a nightly quota to earn and not let her come in until she earns it. And it's all for him, 100%. The pimp is not like an agent who takes a cut. What he does do is pay all her expenses. Her food, rent, medical bills, outfits, everything. And he protects her territory. Uh, A girl didn't want to go down, say for example, and start working somebody else's corner. When you start to do that, you start to be in violation of the game. And when you were in violation of the game, it's really funny. The whole small community would come down on you. So the other girls would turn against you as quick as the pimps would. And then some of the rules are arcane, even chivalrous. Like how a woman gets to choose any pimp she wants. It's called choosing or re-choosing. If the woman finds a better pimp than the one she has, 
She presents him with a wad of cash she's managed to withhold from the first pimp, sort of like a dowry. Then the new pimp goes to the old pimp and says, sorry, she's with me now. And the old pimp is just supposed to let her go. That's the rule. What you want to do is you want to keep your manhood and your dignity intact. And that's basically what would happen is, you know, uh, a guy who was in the game would, would be man enough to say, look, man, your woman chose me. And, and um, here's what's happening. I want to pick up our clothes. And, 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 and it, you know, it's really funny. It's, I never really understood that part of it, but that seems to be part of the ritual, picking up of clothes, as if, you know, those clothes really mattered. I think more than picking up the clothes, uh, that was sort of this hidden way for men to say, look, we have to, to, to uh, finalize this business that we have and move on from there. But no pimp wants it to come to that. And if he suspects that one of his prostitutes is even thinking about leaving, there's a time-honored way to deal with that, too. If you ever, like, felt your girl might be getting ready to leave you or that you're losing or you're getting down or one girl's left and you got two left or you got one left, well, you want to get on the road. So what you do is pack them all in the car and say, look, we're going to travel for a while and you get out of town because it's very hard for them to leave you while you're out of town. You know what I mean? Like you, if you're driving... You drive across state. I mean, I, I, I had a guy drive as far as Georgia, you know, and turn around, come back, just stop a girl from leaving him. Uh, it gives them an opportunity to, to sort of uh, reaffirm their commitment to each other, so to speak. You see, they, they glue, glue them back together. So Mark was the second of Kevin's pals to turn out his girlfriend. And after that, he became a real player. He got chosen by this six-foot-tall cash cow named Sonny and hit the big time. Sonny was a very uh, well-known prostitute in Oakland, and she was white, which was really unusual. Uh, she just liked him. Mm -hmm. And this girl made tons of money. Now, Sonny's the kind of girl where you don't need five girls. If you got one Sonny, mm -hmm. you don't need five girls. Mm -hmm. And he got Sonny. And, and boy, I mean, that's like putting your, putting your name on the map. So Mark was the next one to, to go into house to some, de some degree of success. And then um, Ricky, we called him Little Ricky. Uh, Little Rick went on to have some, some success. He had um, uh, two, three girls. So Ricky... I remember, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit now, but I remember uh, he had uh, finally got a, a couple girls and he was making a little bit of money. And I remember one of the first things he did, he wanted to buy a Bentley. So he bought a Bentley. And, you know, um, Bentley it was this huge ones then. You know, the big sort of like they had in Berkslaw. Remember that show, Berkslaw? With, I forget that. That, but that was the image, you know. <laughs> anyway, I remember Ricky coming. I mean, Ricky's probably like five foot one or five foot two, you know. But I remember him coming down the street. He had just got this Bentley, and you could barely see his head over the stairway. <laughs> it was the most funniest thing I could ever see in my life. But he comes up, he drives up, and he and he he gets out the door. It's bigger than him, you know. He gets out the door and he slams the door and he says, "Man, how you like my new, my Bentley Rolls Royce? I just got it, you know." Anyway, we talk, but he's a, he's a, it's hard for me to describe him, not flamboyant as Keith, 
but very smooth, more family oriented, believe it or not. Uh, he was always interested in how long they were going to stay. You know, he used to always say, you know, hoes come leaving. You know, bitches come leaving. He's like, how long are you going to stay? That was the thing. And his whole thing was creating a family atmosphere. So he always actually wanted to impregnate his girls so that they would have his child, so that they would stay to create that family atmosphere. And he impregnated several of his girls, and they had kids, you know. And, uh, and, and he's young at this point. I mean, he's relatively young. So after not too long a time, Kevin's three friends are living large. They've got the clothes, the cars, the stables. Meanwhile, Kevin still hasn't been able to turn out his childhood sweetheart. He's managing to keep up appearances by becoming a drug dealer, supplying his buddies with the vast amounts of cocaine they've begun using. But Pimps looked down on drug dealers for being low rent, and privately, Kevin begins having doubts about whether or not he has what it takes to be a pimp. Part of his problem is that he doesn't know if he can hit a woman, which is the chief requirement for being in the game. At a certain point, his friend Dwayne actually shows him how it's done. A little warning, this is probably the most disturbing story Kevin will tell this hour. Dwayne, at that time, was, a, was another friend. Uh, his whole philosophy was that, you know what, look, if a girl wasn't hacked and right, you beat the hell out of her, beat the bitch's ass, and she, she'd straighten up. And um, so he told me, he said, look, um, I'm going to show you how to handle this. So he goes and he grabs a handle, a, a coat hanger, much as I have now, and I can just only sort of describe to you what you do. You grab the the um, the hook, the, hand, the 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 hanger part, and you grab the middle of the lower wire and just pull it straight out, and and it'll form sort of a straight sort of. Yeah, uh, uh, no, the silhouette is like a baseball bat. Yeah, outline. Yeah, pretty much. Well, at that point, Dwayne, he had two options, depending on how, how angry he was. He would, he would beat his girls with this hanger just like this. Or if they had to go to work, what he would do is take a, a light towel and wrap it around the towel. That way he could beat her and it wouldn't necessarily leave marks. That way she can go to work and she didn't look all beat up. She could wear the skimpy clothes and still look pretty good if he managed to hit her on the lower thigh or something. But he tried to hit her right on the buttocks with this thing. So, um... Uh, one of my earliest visions was I remember uh, Annie being in the back and me coming in and, and to Dwayne's house, and there was some some commotion and and we sat to talk and he you know he told her just get out of here and we sat down and we started talking I think we were watching a game or something like that and you can hear stuff being thrown and tossed in the back room obviously Annie was upset about something anyway at that point Dwayne called her out of the room after going over and getting a coat hanger and straightening it out. And, and he, t he said to her, he says, Annie, come here. And uh, Annie's like acting like she, she didn't. She's, and he says, bitch, get your ass in here right now. And he's yelling to top of his voice, get your ass in here. This point, he tells his bitch, bend over right here. Drop your pants. I'm sitting there. I'm a bit stunned. I'm like, OK, you know, we're going to roll with this. Uh, and he comes over at this point when when he flies into the tirade and he's yelling, bitch, get your ass over here. She's like at attention. She comes right over and he said, bitch, drop your motherfucking pants and bend over and grab your knees. And and I'll never I'll never forget the look on her face. It was almost very robotic, but she walked right over at a point where 
she was acting wild and, and out of control, but there was a point that he reached when he started to talk to her that she snapped and she just got very robotic and he had total control over her. She walked over and I swear her ass couldn't have been three feet from my face. And she pulled her pants down, bent over and grabbed her knees. And he whacked her with this coal hanger right on her ass. And I mean, she was butt naked, no panties, no pants, no dress, no nothing, butt naked. And he hit her with such force that the outline of that coat hanger was on her ass. And she, it cut her skin and she bled. And as I was looking at her, when she pulled her pants down, it was clear that she had been beat like this before because there were several black marks where they had healed from this coat hanger from uh, previous beatings. At that point, he hit her again. And on the third time he went to hit her, I grabbed his hand and I told him, I said, Dwayne, that's enough. He said, man, this hoe, she knows she out of line. I, man, I'll beat this bitch's ass some more. And at that point, I was saying, man, let's take care of some business. He said, okay. He said, ain't pull your pants up. Even after I stopped him and we were talking, she was still standing there, bent over with her hands on her knees. He finally told her, Annie, pull your pants and get your ass out of here she pulled her pants panties up white this is really this is a really uh, interesting image because when she pulled her panties up first you could see the blood go right through her panties so you could see the red soaking through her panties she pulled her pants up she walked in the back room she was quiet like nothing happened it was just incredible and I thought to myself the cruelty I mean to not have compassion for another person. You know, it's really funny. I didn't openly show any remorse about these girls. I didn't openly feel sorry for them. When, when Annie was getting a beating and when I grabbed Dwayne's hand, my thing was, man, let's take care of our business. It, I didn't say it in a way it was like, man, give her a break. I, I said it in a very nonchalant way, like, man, this bitch, I don't have no time for this. Get this bitch out of here and let's do what we're going to do. I didn't show, like, uh, concern for Annie. You see, because these are, like, internal conflicts that I'm having. Like, all men, you don't ever want to appear less than. So, though these issues are twirling around in my mind and they're starting to bother me, I'm not letting them be known. I'm happy for them still. These are just my own conflicts that I'm starting to have. So I'm still excited about the pimping. I'm still excited about the possibility that maybe, just maybe, this stuff will pass for me. You know? But deep down inside, I think I even knew then, deep down inside it wouldn't because I was a compassionate person. But I was hoping that it would. Why did he do that in front of you? I think part of it was was psychologically um, to demonstrate his control over her. Uh, there was that aspect of it. That was from me. That was from him to me. But I, I think also on the other hand, there was that uh, uh, 
the breaking down of a person's constitution, uh, when he's able to do that to her, uh, eventually at some point she stopped believing in herself and she only believes in him. And so once you can get that transference, get a person to they have no self-esteem worth no left, no sense of self-worth left, then the only thing that they can do is believe in you. They start to associate their own sense of self-worth and self-esteem to the very person who took their own. And this goes directly to the attitude why, why at some point hoes want to make their pimps the best pimp. They want, the, want them to have the biggest hat, the biggest Cadillac, the longest shoes, the longest coat. They want them to have this because in a, in a sense, they live vicariously through that person. Their sense of self-esteem, their sense of self-worth is all uh, incumbent upon how their man feels. This is why pimps dress like pimps. When you have a, a small, uh, a relatively small community, and when I say small community, I'm talking about pimps now, a small community of men who are vying for attention of women, then it's all going to depend a lot on how much attention a guy can bring to himself. In a way, it's almost like what you could call a peacock syndrome. You know how peacocks, they, 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 they have the plumage, the males have the plumage, and they can be like kind of skirting around and they're, they're spreading their wings and they're trying to get the attention of the female. And in a lot of ways, pimps are that, it, 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 that have that same kind of mentality. It's like who has the brightest colors, the biggest hats, the most fur, the longest leather. I don't think they think in terms of, of whether this is like uh, how I will appear to the community a, a, as a whole, but rather they're making a statement to a very specific group of people, i.e. being the pimps and other hoes. I asked Kevin why the girls didn't just leave and strike out on their own. Why bother to have a pimp at all? He said prostitution's too territorial, and given the potential dangers of selling your body, it's good to have somebody on your side, even if it is a pimp. And in their own twisted way, they did provide some sense of family. The thing about it is, is that these were relationships. And that's, I think that's what people forget or, or miss. It wasn't a business arrangement in the sense that, that I say to you, come work for me. And as a result, I'll give you 10%. These were relationships, much like families. People would say, come be a part of my family. You can be a part of my family. Now, families i.e. may mean stable, you can be a part of my stable of hoes, but the fact of the matter is is that that stable may be described as families. Um, this is how we live. We have, we have a, a, a house, we have a nice penthouse, we've got cars, we've got, you know, I got my cars, but off the time the girls had cars too to get back and forth to work. We've got all of this stuff. You don't have to worry about anything except for just working and being a part of the family. So it was never, see, I, I think what confuses people is, is that people try and figure out how the girls have a single purpose of their own in terms of acquiring money. But it was never like that. You, you moved in, you became a part of that whole exciting uh, lifestyle that he would live in. And as a result, the money was really incidental to the lifestyle as a whole. 
you think women who go into prostitution, there's something that happens at like what, age of 10? When does it set in that this self-esteem issues? What I would say was that a person who's, who has issues of self-worth and self, of low self-esteem would probably be a better candidate to become a hoe or a prostitute than someone who did who didn't. Now that sounds fairly obvious to anybody who would hear that. It's, well, that's pretty obvious. But the thing about it is, is that it's not something that people necessarily wear that's so obvious to see in a person. And so I think that's what makes uh, some good pimps is is the little probing of a person to find out where they're at. I'll give you an example of a, a very simple probe a, a friend of mine used to do. He'd be in a club and he, he'd meet a girl and uh, he would go up and let's say he, he's having a cocktail. She's sitting at that counter next to him. And um, he would, after a bit of banter and small talk and conversation, he'd say, buy me a drink. Now, obviously, some girls would automatically say, buy your own drink. Are you buy me a drink? But some women would buy him a drink. That's the little kind of probing stuff that people do. You see, because just do five minutes of just little conversation. Now, all of a sudden, he's seeing that he can exert his will over this woman. That she, in a, in a, not even in a conscious way, is basically giving in to his will. And sometimes it's that simple. Something as small as that. Coming up, a prostitute who likes to talk a lot, Kevin's own rise and fall as a pimp, and whatever happened to all the 70s pimps that's in a minute from Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life from Ira Glass. Most weeks on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of stories on that theme. Today, we're devoting our entire show to one story about pimps in the 1970s. After that era, this particular culture of pimping died off. But the pimps of that era, with the flashy clothes, the big hats, the pretty shoes, they have become American icons, like cowboys or astronauts. Kevin's story continues. My experience was that uh, I met a girl named was Lois. I remember Lois. She was tall, beautiful brunette, about six feet tall, just gorgeous, just gorgeous girl. And uh, I remember, you know, though I was familiar with the game, I didn't want to lead on to her that I was, but nor did she want to lead on to me that she was. 
you know, I'd always aspired to be a pimp and was familiar with the game and knew how it went. I knew she was a hoe, but I wasn't going to never approach her like that. And I knew she had, she was struggling to tell me, you know, because she was trying to feel me out. So she finally got around. She says, well, why don't you come by my job? Come down to my house. She was staying over in Belmont at the time. Come down for the weekend, spend the weekend at my place. She had been to my place several times. We had dinner in the city and stuff. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. So, she, so, uh, and so it was very clever how she did this. It was really funny. And it's just, but she wanted to see how, how, how I played this out. So, so she told me to come and, and get her. Uh, come by my job and get my key. And then you can just go to the house. I got food and everything there. You can get yourself something to eat and just wait, and I'll be there in a few hours. So I said, okay, it's, it's on, so to speak. You know, so I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's on. So I, so I pull on the back of this place, and as it turns out, it's a massage parlor, right? So uh, I, I pull up and back, and I go, and I walk to her, I call her, I said, I said, Lois, I'm here and back. So she comes out, and she's dressed normally. She's got on a nice silk dress and everything. She jumps in the car. She gives me a big kiss. Oh, I'm so glad. This is going to be so exciting. You know, I can't wait to get home. And um, here's the keys. And I say, okay, give her a peck on the cheek, and I'm about to pull off. And she says, well, oh, by the way, take this home for me. And she hands me an envelope full of cash. I mean, obviously... I don't think this was a day's wages. I think she had probably not been with somebody for a while, and she had been saving her money up. Had about $2,500 in cash in it. I mean, and to me, I mean, this this looked like it looked like $100,000 to me. I was like, whoa, okay. But she didn't give it to me, though. She says, she says, by the way, can you take this to my house for me? She hands me this money. I'm looking at this money. I said, sure. So I close the envelope, and I go to her house. Um, later, she she finally makes it home. Um, she calls me and says, you know, there's wine there, have some wine, blah, blah, blah. She's got champagne. She's got the whole, I mean, it's it's obviously a setup. <laughs> you know, the flowers. There was a place called Ah Sam's that sold the imported flowers from Hawaii, the most exotic flowers. And she had these exotic flowers from Ah Sam's all over the house. I mean, easily $500 worth of flowers. So, um... What ended up happening was uh, she ended up getting here about 6.30, 7 o'clock. She comes in, and we sit down, and we're having wine, and we're talking, and, and just sort of chatting. And she, she looks at me, and she smiles. And I said, I said to her, I said, oh, by the way, I put your money over, you know, on your nightstand by your bed, you know. And she said to me, oh, no, you could keep it. It's for you. And I looked at her, and I kind of smiled, and I said, what exactly is it that you do? And she looked at me and smiled, and she said, you know damn well what I do. <laughs> and we just started laughing at each other, you know. And we stayed together. From that point on, we stayed together for, uh, I guess, about seven years. Seven years. <laughs> I remember being in uh, in the Black Night, as a matter of fact, with a with a group of people, and one of the things uh, uh, about about Lois was that uh, she was fairly articulate for a working girl. 
and we would have lively conversations, me and her. I mean, that was one of the things that we enjoyed. I mean, we would have lively conversations. Well, one of the things was that was that when we when you're sitting with a group of guys, and every hoe in the place, right, is taking second position to their man, and so they basically are at this point where they don't speak until they're spoken to. And so when I come in with Lois, she's disrupting this whole f-ing thing. I mean, she's f-ing all this shit up because you know what? Because I'm talking shit and then she's talking shit too. You know what I mean? And she's not waiting for me to stop to give her the okay to talk. Shit. She's talking shit as a separate entity all unto herself. And, uh, and not only is she talking shit, but she'll talk to some other man. You see what I'm saying? Like some other pimp sitting there. So you see. I wasn't just treating her as a hoe. I was treating her to some degree as a partner to me. So our relationship was different. Mm-hmm. And that created a definite conflict when we're sitting around a table with a bunch of pimps and a bunch of hoes who won't even say nothing unless they're spoken to. And then this bitch is running her mouth 90 miles an hour talking about the same that we talking about. Every hoe in the joint is looking at her saying, who the f- it's this bitch, you know what I mean? <laughs> this bitch is out of line. You need to slap that bitch in the mouth and make her shut up. I actually, I actually used to get a kick out of it. I thought it was funny, you know, that, that she was, um, she was spirited like a horse. Mm-hmm. She was spirited and strong willed. And I actually liked that. But for a hoe, that's, that wasn't a very good, uh, trait to have. And so, um, Guys used to, they used to give me a hard time about that. He's like, man, look, if you come and leave that bitch at home, leave Lois. <laughs> it got to that point, you know what I mean, man? Look, if you come, man, leave that bitch at home, man, because that bitch is just disrupting. She's disruptive to the game. I don't want her. They got where they don't want her, want her around the home. Believe me, over the years, I heard people say, man, he, he, I, I heard people say, man, that nigga ain't no pimp. You know what I mean? He ain't no pimp. You know what I mean? But I even got that from my friends, my best friends. So they were critical of you the way? Sure. So at this point, Kevin's become like the pimp who can't shoot straight. His friends keep berating him for fraternizing with Lois, for never giving her quotas. But most appalling is that Kevin's still dating his childhood sweetheart and buying her expensive gifts, all paid for with Lois's money. This is the thing that the guys got on me the worst about. The guy said, you know, look, what you're doing is wrong because what I would do uh, and Lois was probably making, like I said, between four and six hundred dollars a day. I would shower this other girl with gifts. I mean, just, I mean, spent incredible amounts of money on her. I mean, um, diamond rings, gold necklaces. That was another thing the guys, as I said, was a good man at me because they used to say, man, you're not being true to this hoe. You know what I mean? You can't be spending this hoe's money on this square girl if this, unless this girl is paying you too. You know what I mean? So it's like, see, and that was one of the rules of the game. You know what I mean? You can't, you can't be taking money and, from a hoe then spending on a square bra because then in a way you being a trick just like the trick who's spending money with your house you see and so this this was like they couldn't understand I mean this was like a total contradiction to them you know what I mean it's like how you gonna be a pimp 
and she get money from tricks, and then you turn around and be in a trick. We did have an occasion where Lois had did something that was like uh, totally unacceptable, and uh, at that time she she had she had left the house and she had been gone for like maybe a week or something like that. You know, it's, this is like totally unacceptable behavior in any relationship, right. let alone you know pimple relationship. So. Um, I'm at home and I'm I'm handling my business and after a couple of days, you know, you stay up a couple of nights and you're worried, but after a couple of days you get back to your routine and you know, what the f you know, it'll work itself out. But I remember sort of like waltzing in the house and me and the boys is there just kicking it, right? I remember waltzing in the house like nothing happened, you know, like, hey, how's it going? You know, and she comes in and she's heading to the kitchen and I remember I remember the guys was there. And so I felt like to some extent I had to, I had to do something. I had to act. You know, I couldn't let her just like arrogantly walk in like that with the guys in there. So I remember I wheeled around and I slapped her. You know, I slapped her and I slapped her hard. I mean, I slapped her real hard. And when I slapped her, she fell to the ground. And she's like just laid there like knocked out. Like she was knocked out. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, geez. You know, did she hit her head when she's going down? I mean, what, what is all of this about? So she's laying there. I remember looking around, and I, I think it was Mark who was there. And I remember Mark looked at me, and he, he had this sort of look of disgust. Like, you know, this bitch is just playing you like a yo-yo, you know? And I'll tell you something really interesting. Almost almost without thought, I remember I, I had this pool stick in my hand, and I just whacked her across her back with this pool stick, just about as hard as I could. I mean, it broke the pool stick in half. And let me tell you, <laughs> I've never seen nobody jump up as quick in my life. This girl was like she was passed out. I've never seen nobody jump. So quick in my life, this girl jumped straight up off the floor and ran out the back door to the kitchen, out the back door. I mean, she just jumped. That's almost like she had springs. And I remember Mark saying to me, man, that bitch trying to play you. You see, man, that bitch, that bitch, she slapped She was going to act like she was knocked out. She was going to lay there all night if you let her. I said, man, that bitch is playing on you. I said, he said, Kevin, you know what, man? You need to take care of that bitch because that bitch is straight playing you. Would you have hit her if you were alone? Initially, yeah, I probably would have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I probably would have. Only because I knew that, I, I, I would have known that it was in order. It was what was in order. Right. Yeah, it, it, I, I, it's almost like I had to. And she knew it. What's really funny was that later she got bored mm -hmm. because I lived a, a fairly normal lifestyle. She got bored, but I remember one day, but I remember one day this guy I heard pulling up to my door and knocking on the door, and um, it's, I look out and it's Lois, 
and she's got this guy with her, mm-hmm. right? And he's a guy who actually I had known, I had seen around, who I knew to be a pimp mm-hmm. named Jared. And uh, Jared says to me, look, <laughs> let me talk to you for a minute. <laughs> so he comes in and um, he says to me, he said, look, man, uh, your hoe, she rechose. She's choosing me. She want to be with me now. He said, you know, I hope you don't have no problem with none of this, man. I just wanted to come to, come to you man to man and let you know, you know, what time it is. Now, it's really funny. As dignified and as much a part of the game that I had been and as much as I had seen at that point, I said to him, fine. I said, that's fine. She can, I was real dignified. I said, that's fine. You can, you can go, you know. Um, and uh, I remember him saying, uh, she want to get her close. I said, that bitch can't get out of my motherfucking house, period. <laughs> and it's really funny because, see, in the name of the game, I shouldn't have did that. I mean, I should have said, sure, go ahead. But, but at that point, even after all the training, after all the schooling, after all the being around and after understanding how the game goes, at that point, I lost it, you know? And I was like, no, you got her, but the bitch can't have a f***ing thing for me. And it was really funny. It taught me something about the game. Because when, you, when, you, when you're in violation of the game, the game will always come back and bite you. But I remember them leaving, and I remember them returning about 15 minutes later with the police. They came in, they took all our clothes, and they left. Now, you know what? They had every right to, because in the name of the game, I should have gave her stuff back anyway. But at that time, I was so angry she was reverting back because one of the things she had always said was that she was so glad that she didn't have a traditional pimp hole relationship, that she didn't no longer want to be a part of that. But what she taught me was that she longed for it. She actually did miss it. So she, you think she just lost respect for you as a pimp since you didn't care about any of that? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think I think at some point she um she needed somebody i think she needed somebody who held those values mm-hmm. that she held higher than what i held them mm-hmm. i was t- i was telling you i didn't care if she bought a hundred dollars home and i think when she started to realize that that i didn't care that was so much a part of her her self-esteem mm-hmm. You know, she always prided herself in her ability to make money that way. And, yeah, I think she started to say, yeah, that's he don't give a f-. you know, he don't give a f- about me. That, that my not caring about the money, for me, translated into me not caring about her to her. Were you heartbroken? At the time, yeah, yeah, it was it was tough. After Lois, Kevin had a few other girls, but his heart wasn't in it. He just wasn't a very good pimp, and they knew it too, and eventually they left him.
for girls who had been around and who had had, who had been with guys who were pimps, they would soon find that that I didn't feel that need in them in terms of being able to control them and in terms of, or even having a desire to, in terms of how a raw pimp would handle them. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, they would, uh, I would either get rid of them or they would get rid of me one at a tell. Finally, after a few years, Kevin got out of the game. By then, it was almost the 80s, and pimping was dying. The vice cops I spoke to said women's lib killed off the pimps. They couldn't stand it anymore, giving all their money to a man. Kevin said it was a combination of that and crack cocaine that did in the 70s pimp. Crack cocaine sets you down. When you smoke that stuff, you have no desire to go anywhere. It almost like you're embalmed, you know? It starts also trickle down from the pimps to the girls. Because now, their guy, who's there had all his self-esteem and is looking up at all his time, is now sitting in the house. He's just not the same person that he was once before, you know? He's not riding. He's not fun like he used to be. He's not excited anymore. He don't have this whole God complex of being, I'm still great and this and that. Every one of these guys that I'm telling you about got involved with crack cocaine. Every single one of them. And eventually, they lost all control. It took out many a pimp. Many a pimp. Did any of them realize as it was happening that this was a downward spiral? No. Not not a single person ever stopped to think, well, you know what, maybe this game is getting old. Maybe it's getting antiquated. Maybe it's time for They always thought they were coming back. They were coming back. It's always one hole away from coming back, from being on top of the game. I think the guys who are smart, who aspire, to something better, they will always have used the game as a means to getting somewhere else, and that was very clear. But for the guys who were purely in the game, for the game itself, and felt from day one that the pimping was all they wanted to do, that's all they ever did. They lived it, they'll die it. Simple as that. like I said, it's about the purity and the love and the truth of the game. And that's, and that's the thing that I, I, I always loved that. I always understood the purity by which they approached what they did and their, and their pure love of it, you know? Uh, I always admired that, and I still do to this day. I still love the purity of which they loved it, and they studied it, they studied it, and they, and they, and they, they, they elevated it to an art form. Kevin today makes his living in the straight world, creating jewelry for rap stars. He spoke with Tamar Brat in California.
Produced today by Elise Spiegel and myself, with Nancy Updike and Julie Snyder. Contributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and Consigliere Sarah Val. Production help from Jorge Just, Todd Bachman, and Sylvia Lemus. Special thanks to Debbie Mitchell. Musical advice from R.J. Smith. To buy a cassette of this or any of our programs, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. Or visit our website where you can buy tapes or you could also listen to our programs for free online www.thisamericanlife.org Special bonus tracks on the website this week. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show has been provided by the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds. And from the Albert A. List Foundation and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who knew that I would be a perfect public radio employee when he settled up to me in a bar one night years ago and demanded, Buy me a drink. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. Public Radio International.